Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we're delving into human-centred design with Jerry Scullion of the Human-Centred Design Network. Jerry has had a 17-year career spanning Australia and Europe and is a huge advocate for human-centred design and what it can mean for our ever-evolving world. Over the course of our chat, we pull apart what people mean when they talk about this discipline, the potential for positive change and the dangers of getting it wrong. We look at the importance of informed consent and how this can impact our usage of everything from email to doorbells and even fertility apps. We also take a look at what this means for software design in particular and why businesses should actively engage in improving design for the greater good. If you enjoy my chat with Jerry, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, over to the studio. Jerry, it's a pleasure to have you as a guest on Inside Intercom this week. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I'm a designer. I call myself a service designer, which I guess it's an emerging term in this market, but for the last 14 years, I lived in Australia and I had my own business and consultancy over there. But I run the Human Centered Design Network, which is a global initiative. Mm-hmm. And I also run a series of podcasts and network called This Is HCD. So um, my, my wife calls me an entrepreneur, but I just call myself a jack of all trades, really. Okay, cool. And when you were working in Australia, you had some interesting experiences, I think. You worked at MySpace for a while. I did. I kind of uh, like a cat. I always land on my feet. Mm-hmm. I used to be into bands and I used to play in bands and I, I you know, was a singer songwriter and recorded and released albums and stuff. And I always used to hide that, you know, in my in my profile. And one day um, the guys at MySpace got wind of, you know, me and they contacted me and I ended up working at MySpace International, which was based out of Sydney for a number of years. And then... You know, I went on to become the head of design in Australia and New Zealand and it was it was a fantastic opportunity. And I, and I reflect on it now after having lived through the the death of a mammoth um, with great insight. Not many people have lived through Well, it's through that. funny that you should say that because obviously like the start of my career was for an indie rock music station. Yeah. But here was suddenly a place that you could actually interact with artists yeah. that you liked even as a fan regardless of whether you were working in the industry and it was it was really something it was a revolution and I, I still yearn for it to, to be honest maybe not the platform because it used to go down all the time it was it was pretty unreliable but it's it challenged the convention at the time and it really brought people together and it was it was a fantastic period to to be involved in like coming from an advertising background like I did design industrial design in Ireland and then I went on to work in ad agencies which was like the, the probably the only career growth pattern for me at that stage. And we used to do campaigns for businesses and we'd be like, oh, you know, trying to sell it back and you got 20,000 visits this week to suddenly go into MySpace where I remember I put an ad up and I checked back a couple of hours later, we a couple of million views. It was just mind blowing the growth that was happening at that stage. But then the growth started to decline. So that must yeah. have been quite the whirlwind. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Like in Australia, we looked after everything outside of America. Uh, the UK had their own office, but it was one stage, it was 950 million active users. And it was interesting to go from the the town halls where it'd be like, on this month we're at 890. Um, you know, the website did go down for a couple of mm-hmm. days, but you know, we're hoping it'll fix it this month. And then the next month to be 860. And you're like, hmm, 
You don't need to be a genius here to see that someone's catching us. And, you know, as much as I like to bag on about Facebook, their growth was just, it was, they're scaling at such a rate yeah. at that stage that the inevitable was going to happen. And it did. Yeah. And then what next? So what took you from that through your journey to becoming interested in human-centric design? So I've always been interested in it from the moment that I qualified mm-hmm. like industrial design. I had a, a moment of clarity in 2003, a very long time ago, where um, I realised that uh, I was contributing to, you know, mass destruction of the planet and um, by producing products that were highly disposable at the time, mm-hmm. battery packs and stuff like this that was, you know, just protecting a couple of four AA batteries. And I was like, really? Well, this is just going to go straight in the bin and that's going to go into landfill. And it wasn't until post MySpace, like I, I kind of, I didn't have any opportunity to spread my wings. And I started migrating more into the world of UX at that time, like design research and user research. I got an opportunity in 2013, 2014, uh, actually no earlier than that, 2011, working at Cochlear, which is a medical, they provide solutions for the profoundly deaf. Mm -hmm. It's close to what people would call a bionic ear. Wow. And that whole kind of using design to to kind of transform people's lives was uh, as an entry point into this next chapter of my life, which I've kind of dedicated to human-centered design, which ultimately is what we talk about in the Human-Centered Design Network on the podcast. So when you're talking about human-centered design, though, because in in researching this, there seems to be a Hmm. couple of different, and by a couple, I mean a lot of different variations of what people mean when they talk about human-centered design. So I think it'd be really useful for the audience to know what you mean by that. What what does that mean to the human-centered design network? Yeah, so there is like, there is numerous definitions of human-centered design and there's multiple ways of looking at it. It does have its own ISO standard. So there is an actual standard of a definition out there. But um, my understanding of human-centered design is do no harm. And okay. it's using design to, to provide the right solutions, but not at the expense of hurting other people. In depends who you ask and who's listening to that question, though. It can be perceived as being a framework, like and a, and a process of, you know, tick boxes. You move from left to right and we are doing human-centered design. Mm-hmm. So it's more like a verb. Whereas I believe human-centered design is a mindset. So you could speak to some consultancies and they say, oh, we we do human-centered design here. And they wouldn't be wrong. But to me, human-centeredness is more of how you are and how you be when you're on your own and how you do the right thing Mm -hmm. and um, how you have to demonstrate those those behaviors on a day-to-day basis. Because there's a quote I came across by Tobias Van Schneider. He did this really interesting medium piece saying, did Hitler have great designers and can good design be bad? And it's a really interesting idea. But the quote that he says is, can we even say that ethics and design are the same? Probably not, because design is a practical activity where ethics is more of a system of beliefs. So would you Mm. see human-centered design as being that bridge between those two things? Well, no, for me, uh, human-centered design is the brain. Okay. And it's also the soul and the consciousness. So the brain tells you like this is makes that decision, but the soul and the consciousness is, should guide you. It should be the North Star. Design, you're right, is something that you do, but ethics is something that ultimately allows us to determine the right from wrong. And when you're talking about human-centered design, obviously, mm. who is that human? Because like, where is that data coming from? Yeah, I mean, it depends, what, again, who's asking. And I don't mean to seem 
too aloof in terms mm-hmm. of like human centeredness. And I, I definitely don't want to come across that because human centered design is definitely accessible. It's it's definitely something that can cascade into organizations to help them do the right thing. But to answer your question, who is a human? It depends on the context of use and who's actually using that product or service. Who are you designing it for? Because there's a really interesting book that I've been reading called Invisible Women. Women. Mm. It's by a lady called Caroline Credo Perez. And in it, she looks at how data is biased towards the average Mm. white, usually male. And as a result, there's some really, really astounding research that she's done that, that shows things like car design, even, for example, as a result of cars being designed predominantly around men, women are 71% more likely to be injured in the exact same car crash and the exact same car as a man, 17% more likely to die. And it just, it strikes me that if we're not looking at who the human is, then there's all these unconscious biases that can come into play. Yeah, absolutely. Like design, whether it depends how you look at it, but consciously designers have, have been really bad in the past, mm-hmm. they are responsible. We are all directly responsible for where we're at currently in the, in the situation of global turmoil and, and also what you've identified as products and um, some of those problems there. How you can get around that is having a more inclusive and diverse team seats at the table. So like, I don't know where those statistics come from, but you know, having a, a diverse and inclusive team would have gone some way to, to helping improve that. But also um, having a, a decision system of sorts within the organization to ensure that what they're doing is the right thing. And again, it's not going to harm anyone. Mm. And do you think there's any way to mitigate against people designing from their own perspective? Because that's that's almost human nature, isn't it? It is, but it shouldn't be. Like if you have an inclusive and diverse team and you have the right processes in place and you're speaking to the right people and you're asking the right questions, you can you can really, really improve those outcomes. There's no doubt about it. Like the, the, the facts are there. It's it's trying to bring the businesses on that journey to change, mm-hmm. to make sure that what they're doing is the right thing. And that's the hard part. That's the hard part is, is getting the buy-in at the top to to support this type of movement. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we live in a capitalistic world. The bottom line is really what they look at at the end mm-hmm. of the month. And it's really bringing organizations back to to what matters and having those serious conversations that make a difference. Otherwise, it's it's going to be an, an uphill struggle. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. 
We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So a lot of the examples that people give when they're talking about human-centered design seem to be around physical products. But what does it actually mean for software design in particular? Yeah, look, software design is, um, I wouldn't even say it's the next realm. We've gone through this realm and we've entered it. It's a huge opportunity to help uh, improve those outcomes. But there's also a huge risk if you don't get it right. And I was, I was speaking to you earlier about that case study of, of informed consent mm-hmm. and what that means when you're designing a product. I had a really interesting conversation with, with a wonderful designer in Chicago called Ava Penzimug on the podcast recently about how the design of, of these IoT products, Internet of Thing products, can contribute to the proliferation of domestic violence. And it was a really interesting angle because you know, there's these designers that have created wonderful products like Alexa and other great tools out there that I, I probably should name, but can't come to my mind right now. And we just assume that when we use them, like, this is the cool thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you can turn your lights on, you can play your music. Hey, Alexa, like, you know, how, how long is it going to take me to get into the city? But you don't really think about how it could be you know, misused. And some of the scenarios that she's done excellent research on is is how it can actually be used to gaslight in relationships. And what I mean by that is uh, she has examples from her research of where partners maybe turn the heating up through Alexa or through Nest. That's almost literal gaslighting. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. But they turn the heating up and on their on their spouse and their spouse is like, oh, why am I feeling so hot? And then having to constantly mm. go and change it. So this game playing is a lot more accessible to those kind of poor behaviours in, in relationships. And ethically, you have to ask yourself the question, you know, how do we get around this? How do we stop this? Now, you can get around that by by really consciously asking how these products can be misused. Another good example I have was one of my friends was in town recently. And I say friends, he's more of a professional acquaintance. And hmm. um, he emailed through my, my business email and I responded. He wanted to know what the good things to do in Dublin. You know, one of my favorite emails to receive. Like, you know, I'm very proud to be from Dublin. And I responded back with a list of pubs and great, great bars to go to. And, you know, I was there on Saturday night on the couch, as I am. I'm a father too, you know, w- watching TV at nine o'clock. And I started to get all these little notifications on my phone of opens. And I could see that this guy was out in the town, like, you know. And, and following your advice. Yeah, following my advice. And and I could see that as the light, night went on, he was opening it more and more and more and more. And that's just an amusing thing between friends, but in the wrong hands, it's. Dangerous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there, there was no informed consent from his mm. part. He he just was, you know, assumed that there was an email exchange between two people that I wasn't getting access to um, his sort of data in terms of in terms of his behaviours. So when I called up on him, I said, "Hey, you had a good night on Saturday night," and he was like, "How did you know?" And I knew like that he had been out till two or three o'clock in that morning, and it it created this kind of creepiness, this mm. this you know area of, you know, is this even appropriate? Why do I feel that I've done something wrong? Like, who's at fault here? And it's the system is at fault. 
Yeah, because I know Superhuman have gotten a bit of heat recently yeah. over a part of their email System. service yeah. that allows you to see, similar to that, red receipts, but also where the person is yeah. is actually reading it. And that's informed consent. Mm. Like it, it keeps on coming back to that. You know, informed consent means more than just, you know, letting you know that we're doing it. It's it's really asking the questions, why are you doing this? Well, what is in it for you as the business? What are you doing with that data? Like, wh- where is that data being sold? And also, like, what does it mean for um, the future? And another good example is this in the GDPR, post-GDPR, all these clicks that come onto the website when you come on about your mm-hmm. cookies. We don't know what we're doing with that information. We're just saying, okay, get out of my way. I'm trying to find this content. And you just accept. But you don't know the impact of what that data is happening. Where are they sending that? Where are they selling it? I saw a really interesting thing about ring.com and I actually have a ring doorbell at home as well. And one of my friends in Germany has a really good um, time trying to call me out the fact that they're selling my data. And I saw recently that ring are now selling the data back to marketing companies and how they actually should better perform Mm -hmm. doorstop activities to sell stuff. So that whole world of ring data um, with Amazon is another gray area. Like what are they doing? I, I haven't given consent for my data of anyone who walks into my property to ring my doorbell, they haven't given consent to have their video or their photograph taken by that service. So now I'm left of the quandary. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a human-centered designer and I've got a product on my door that the owners of that data is a really gray area. I believe I own the data. Ring believe they own their data. So what are they doing with it? And that's what I mean. Like if you don't have those conversations and it's not made clear to the customers, you can't make that informed decision. Well, it's funny, a friend of mine is using fertility app at the moment. And we jokingly had a conversation about, you know, oh, maybe you're going to get served ads based on where you are in your cycle. But it had never occurred to her. And we thought it was funny and it was gas and, you know, that was fine. But it had never even occurred to her, as you say, with the informed consent, that she is giving up probably some of the most personal information that you could give about yourself just for the use of an app. And, you know, that's fine if Mm. that consent is informed but it's not fine I guess if it's not and that really brings us to the the crux of it the ethical crux of it the other side of it though and just to go back a bit in the conversation because there's more to this than just data you know one thing that Des and Paul spoke about in last week's podcast episode was the return to command line user interfaces and while that's brilliant for maybe the average user that possibly has implications for somebody who's visibility impaired or mm. or physically impaired. Do you think that there is actually an onus on designers to look at that as well? Absolutely. Like I, I had a good example. Like I, I do get to speak to a lot of interesting people on the podcasts and I had a had a potential conversation with somebody who was quite senior in the design world and they were a little bit older than me, maybe is a nice way of saying it and they they went and they purchased a nice usb mic and they were using a windows machine Mm -hmm. and i was sitting online waiting for them to come on for the podcast and i could hear this oh i feel so stupid i'm so stupid this continuous like you know they're they're bringing themselves down why can't i get this to work and i kept on having to reaffirm i said this is not you this is the system Mm -hmm. The system is exclusive to you know to people who are privileged enough to be able to use these machines who use them on a day to day basis, and I guess I'm I'm starting to suffer from some of this stuff as well. I I forget how to do things, you know, and I'm not that old, mm-hmm. so you can imagine how difficult it can be for somebody who one has a has a disability, 
and somebody who's a little bit more um, visually impaired or um, have motion impairedness, it's 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 a much more difficult thing. And too often we just design for that sweet spot, that that piece of people who are like you know competent technically and they're able to do these things. But we don't consider what it looks like to those other people who are less fortunate. And do you think then that? designers should impose a set of ethical values when they're designing? Well, look, it, it's really, really common. You go into businesses now and you see these beautiful big posters on the wall, like, you know, people first and, you know, we we value your money, we value your privacy. And I'm like, I, I guess I'm a bit more hardened to, to this stuff. I ask the question, are you, you know, like, how do you do these things? Organizations need to really stand up and really behave and, and sort of reenact those values prove to me that you really care about your customers. Too often they don't. This is just, you know, it's theatre to them. It doesn't really integrate back into the real world. I want to see the demonstrated behaviours of how you're actually using my data. I want you to be clear about these things. Okay, well, I mean, that's on an individual level, but what is the incentive then for companies? How do we incentivize companies to be more ethical or more human-centred in their design? There is an ROI in design, like, you know, like when I say design, it's actually strategic design as opposed to just the craft of design. How do you get them to change? It's very difficult. It really is. It's especially when they're focused on on the bottom line. You have to look at the culture of the organization. You have to get deep into that culture of how they're remunerating and how they're rewarding. You have to change human behavior. And that's the most difficult thing, especially when you're looking at organizations like banks that are baked on 200 years of behaviors that have just been reinstilled time and time again. It's been a reaffirmation. How do you do that? It takes a, a mind shift. So there's a reason why the banks are suffering. There's a reason why all these, these institutions are starting to, you know, get more of a, a vibration, shall we say. You look at N26, you look at Revolut. You know, the next world and the next generation is not going to stand for that type of behavior. They will just move. And so they should because they don't deserve your business. And do you think that that is a push that's going to come from the consumer side or is it going to come from the design side or is it happening already and it's coming from both? This is happening. It's the consumer. Like we have to get better at this. If you're not happy with your service, move. It's it's one of those things. The bottom line has to be affected in order to transform the change businesses will sit there and say, well, look, we're still making money. Look at my space. Look at that example that I spoke about at the early mm-hmm. stage. There was a level of arrogance in those days. We were like, yeah, well, we still have 850 million users. It's pretty cool. We're still making money. You know, it won't last forever. Okay. There has a lifespan. That whole kind of product life cycle is, you know, is a really good example. My space had peaked. We believed it would continue to grow. It didn't. It died. And it died a really big death. <laughs> And do you have any advice then for people who are maybe leading design teams on how they can go about doing that? So there's a few things and I and I want to point back to a fantastic episode with Kim Goodwin, who is somebody that I look to uh, as she's one of my North Stars, one of my favorite people. And you look at design systems and you look at systems and how you can actually design these these new tools quicker, better, faster. And too often there's a stage that happens before that and it's the decision system. It's the, it's the bits that help guide the organization through the decision-making process and what they should do next. I mean, by that, if, you're, if you don't have that decision system in place, you start to look at the viability and the feasibility and the desirability of the new, these new products and you determine what you should build next and what's going to drive profit. That's fine. 
But what should be considered in that is the impact on life and the mm-hmm. impact of humans, but also the impact on the planet. And that bit is is often overlooked. So going back to your question of with the, the design teams, the design teams need to stand up more and shout and talk about these things with executives, educate them. The executives are too busy, you know, to start thinking like this. We need to help them. We need to help them in the journey, make them aware of these things. Because deep down, you know, it is possible to change. So is it a case of design teams then trying to flesh out or map out what the very, very worst unintended consequences of their actions or their design might be before making a judgment call financially, ethically, and what have you of whether or not they Mm. do it? Yeah, definitely. That's one approach you can take. I've actually seen some of my peers when I've, I've worked in businesses where they've mocked up newspaper headings and wow. they've shared them around emails like, you know, leaks, data leaks, like the impacts that these things could have. And it sends reverberations around as like, you know, if that did happen, how would we how would we react? You know, what would happen if we did have a data leak? And what would happen if someone else went to market with this product? How would that change our behavior? Human behavior is one of the most difficult things to change. Mm-hmm. It really is. Like, And that shock sort of tactic is one way of doing it. Not too sure you'll have a lifespan in doing it too often, though. Suddenly, questions your your ethical. Um, well, the shock value doesn't yeah. last, obviously. Yeah. Every day, you know, like you're the yeah. boy, the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. So, to me, I tend to take the the short game and the long game more. So, so, should I say, in terms of education and taking them on the journey and educating them about the impacts. So, looking outside of the standard, and I'm doing the the air quotes here. What does the standard user look like? But what does the what does that look like for someone who's on the on the periphery of of normal, as as some teams would call it? But that grid edge. What does it look like out there at the moment? How do, how does your service degrade into those experiences and those ecosystems? Most of the time, if you haven't thought of that, it's not going to be very good. So before we wrap up, Jerry, do yeah. you have a favorite designer of any discipline and why? Um, my, my favorite designer is, D- is Dieter Ram, which is a, a German industrial designer. And I've always had a love for him. But my favorite designers tend to be the people that are working in the NGOs, actually, the people right. that, that don't have access to designers, the people that are making an impact on a day-to-day basis. I'd call it one person, Mary Jo McVeigh, is, is someone who I look to in Sydney. She she was a, a traumatic counsellor during the Troubles in Belfast. And I, I, got, I was lucky enough to work with her whilst in Australia when I was designing a product for children who'd suffered sexual abuse. And the work that she does is is probably one of the best services that I'd ever seen in absence of a designer. She created a beautiful therapeutic practice for children to come in and it was in a bungalow and she, she created all these tools to help heal and um, provide a safe haven for children. So I look to people like that less so than the more famous designers out there in the market that have published books. Mm. And lastly, before we let you go, where can people keep up with your work? Well, you can go to thisishcd.com, um, listen to some of the podcasts there. My business is Humana uh, in Ireland, and I also run the academy.ie. It's a design, service design, UX training capabilities. We go internally and we provide public training as well for people looking to learn more about strategic design. And you've plans to launch a conference as well? Next year, 2020, I'm planning on running the first human centered design conference in Dublin. I say that and every time I say it, I get a little bit of a shudder up my back. Um, (laughs) It's going to be a big thing for me. It's an undertaking, but it's something that I believe 
in. So uh, yeah, you can check that out. It's it's going to be on thisisitd.com. So all the information is there. And you've an interesting way of thinking about it. Like I've, I've rarely heard a conference promoter, if you will, say that they don't want people to travel to come to their conference. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit of a, a kind of a backward way of looking at it. But again, I've had a, another moment of clarity, shall we say. I had one in 2003 and I had another one middle of last year. And I, I, I'm encouraging people not to travel outside of a two hour flight radius due to carbon emissions. So it's really baked for people in Ireland and the UK initially. But presumably there'll be tons of content that they can access. Yes. Great. But the roadmap is definitely bring this conference to other territories. So Central Europe, Australia and America. Fab. Well, watch this space. Thanks a million for joining us today, Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.